Heavenly Father, oh, it feels so good to be a child of yours. But I pray that that feeling would permeate through this place, that you are loving, you've drawn us to you, saved us from ourselves and from the devil and the world. And Lord, we thank you for gospel grace. Lord, I pray for the DNL classes that have already started. Lord, that you would bless them. Lord, that you would draw more people to come out next week. Lord, thank you for this morning for such a live conversation, a conversation that was real. Uh, Lord, I didn't sense any holy pretension, but Lord, it was a place where we could talk about where we struggle, where we need you. In the men's class, we were talking about how we're passive. They're tempted with passivity and how you call us to be active in particular battles in our life. And Lord, I pray that more men would come next week to just experience and join the conversation that I was blessed to experience this morning. And Lord, I know that Similar situations are going on in the women's class, and I pray, Lord, that you would send women to the women's class as well. Lord, that, uh, that we just, wouldn't just become a, a holy huddle of godly men and women, but, Lord, that your word would change our hearts and our lives to start to do the things that you have called us to do, to fulfill the responsibilities you have called us to, and not just that, but to engage the people that we are surrounded by in doing those things, to engage them with love and compassion and empathy. Lord, would you do that work in our people? Lord, I pray that you would bless the meeting this week at the bank concerning the church building. Lord, that your hand would be on that meeting, that that things would move positively. Lord, we pray for our church as we're transitioning to having a senior pastor in Adam. Lord, that you would enable us and to remind us to pray for him and his family. Lord, that you would give us patience as he gets acclimated to our church and as he continues to think how the Lord would lead him to lead us. We pray that our church would be incredibly supportive of both him and his family. Just thinking through what it's like to transition from one church to another church. Lord, we pray for the global church as well. Lord, I think about the Iraqi Christians who have been pushed out of their cities and their towns in which they have lived for thousands of years by militant and radical Islamists. When I think about the tragedies that are happening in Korea and in South America and all over the world where people are persecuted for Christ's sake. Lord, I I want to pray that persecution would end, but I know that the faithful ones there experiencing it don't want me to pray that. But they would rather me pray, Lord, that we would pray that they would be faithful 
in the midst of persecution because of what it does in building up individual believers and building up the church as a whole. And Lord, I know that's counterintuitive to us to pray that way, but Lord, bless these who are struggling, who are being persecuted against. And Lord, we pray even for us in this local community where we experience persecution, Lord, that you would strengthen us. Lord, we pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word this morning, that you would encourage us with the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five. What we're gonna do is we're gonna read the entire passage of verses one through 12, but our sermon this morning is focusing on verses 10 through 12. So if you would, please stand for reading God's word. Matthew chapter five, starting in verse one. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In these following verses, this is what the sermon will be on. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. How important is it setting expectations in life with those whom you love? You think about it, I mean, knowing expectations is really important. Um, like for instance, one time, uh, my oldest boy, Marshall, he had a bandaid that was left on his skin for a little bit too long. I'll admit that. And, you know, sometimes setting expectations really works in your favor and sometimes it doesn't. So, so this time it really didn't. And I'm, I'm like, Marshall, we have to take this bandaid off. It's really going to hurt. And so then for the next 10 minutes, I'm chasing him around the house but at other times, setting expectations is incredibly valuable. Like when you're sitting at the Mexican restaurant and that big old plate of pollo con crema is brought out and right before the waitress puts it on the table, you know what she says? Hot plate, hot plate, right? So expectations are incredibly important. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. Jesus loves us so much that he sets the expectation that a part of the Christian life 
also includes the component of persecution. So here's the big idea. I'll put it right up front and center. Rejoice when you are persecuted for Christ's sake. Did you hear that? Rejoice when you are persecuted for Christ's sake. And to help us understand that, I want us to look at three things. Number one, explanation. Number two, evaluation. And number three, exaltation. So number one, explanation. Let's take a look back at verse 10. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. What does Jesus mean by persecuted? Leon Morris Morris says this, to persecute means inflicting suffering on people who hold beliefs that the establishment frowns on. Okay, all right. Well, Bishop J.C. Ryle, he dives in a little bit further and he says this, Jesus means those who are laughed at, mocked, despised, and badly treated because they endeavor to live as true Christians. So we can see here that Jesus' explanation of what he means by persecution, a little bit better when we look at verse 11, because here we got verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. But then Jesus moves to a little bit more personal when he's speaking it to disciples in verse 11. So think about verse 11 as an expansion on verse 10. And he says this, blessed are you. So you see the difference? Verse, verse 10, blessed are those. Verse 11, blessed are you. When others revile you. Do you know what revile means? It's abusive criticism. So he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So let's think about it this way. Persecution is mistreatment and discrimination because of Christian beliefs and practices. But what does it look like? Well, that's something that's very interesting about persecution because there's kind of a, a large range because it could be as mild as social distancing on the one hand or as severe as murder on the other hand. I don't know if you've had a chance yet to read uh, Mindy Bell's book, They Say We Are Infidels, but I highly recommend you reading that. Mindy, is she's a reporter, and she, she goes to Iraq, and she records basically the Christian experience And from 2003, when the coalition forces invaded, all the way up to the present time and the horrors of what ISIS is doing. And in chapter 14, it starts with this this phrase. It says, it's one sentence. This, This is the first sentence of chapter 14. I have a student who wants to kill me. I have a student who wants to kill me. Now, those were the words of Jeremiah Small. Jeremiah Small was a 33-year-old English teacher who was teaching in a classical school in Iraqi Kurdistan, which is in this mountainous region. He was in this town that had a mountain region around the city. And the school was interesting because it had a diverse religious student body, but it was taught mainly by Christians. But Jeremiah Small, by all accounts, was the favorite teacher from the students. He was different. He ate the local dishes. I mean, he, he wore the local garb. He learned the dialect, the Kurdish dialect, so much so that he could go into the markets and he could negotiate with the vendors. He was very involved in the students' lives as well. He would open up his home 
on, in, in the evenings and fix dinner for the students, and he would open up his home so that way they could come and, and, and study and conversate. I mean, he, he, would, he would even be a chaperone on camping trips, and he would teach his, uh, his students how to rock climb. He wanted them to fall in love with reading Shakespeare and John Bunyan, and he would work through different classes on world religions. I mean, the student said, listen, he is really Kurdish, even though we know he's American. He was set apart. He was different. But remember, he said to his friend Amir on the telephone one Friday, I have a student who wants to kill me. Now, Amir and and Jeremiah, they talked every single Friday. And so Amir, when he heard this, he was very concerned. And Jeremiah said, you know, don't worry too much about it, just pray about it. And he kind of laughed it off a little bit because he was like, look, this guy just doesn't like me because he says that I talk about Jesus all the time and I pray too much. Well, Amir couldn't laugh it off because he was a converted Muslim. And so instead of waiting till the next Friday, he picked up the phone on Wednesday and called Jeremiah to check in on him. Jeremiah, tell me about this situation. How has it developed? And Jeremiah said, it's okay, please, just pray. Well, that next very day, on Thursday, March the 1st, 2012, at the beginning of the 11th grade English class, there was a Muslim student standing at the back of the class, and he pulled a pistol from his pocket, and he fired multiple times at Jeremiah, striking him in the chest and in the head. And on that day, Jeremiah died on the classroom floor. I know at this point, some of you may be thinking, hold up, we've, we've been tracking through this series on the Beatitudes, and you know, we were learning about blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. What, what is all this talk about persecution? I mean, why would anybody persecute somebody with such attributes? Why would anybody persecute Jeremiah? Well, D.A. Carson answers this way. It is no accident that Jesus should pass from peacemaking to persecution. For the world enjoys its cherished hates and prejudices so much that the peacemaker is not always welcome. So here's kind of our, our our definition. Persecution in this passage is mistreatment and discrimination as mild as social distancing or as severe as in the case of Jeremiah, murder. So let's clarify who are blessed when they're persecuted. Does Jesus say he blesses anyone who is mistreated and discriminated against? Because think about this. Are those in the transgender community blessed because they feel mistreatment from a large percentage of society? Is a Christian blessed when they are fired for what they claim were gospel conversations at the water cooler, when in actuality they were extended social interactions that were causing distractions leading to poor performance. When protests morph into riots, are those arrested for vandalizing private property blessed? When some greedy business owners are targeted by the IRS, is this a persecution that is blessed? What distinguishes a persecuted person 
that is blessed by Jesus. Well, Jesus shows us in verse 11 and both in verse verse 10 and in verse 11. Because look at this. If you look back in, in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for what? For righteousness' sake. And then look, skip down to verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on whose account? Jesus' account. So there is this connection. So for righteousness' sake and on my account, that is on Jesus' account, are virtually, virtually the same thing. So what Jesus means by righteousness, we need, we need to understand that, right? What he, might, what he means here in Matthew is something very important. He even summarizes it in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, when he said, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So when Jesus says in verse 10, for righteousness sake, he essentially means for the sake of loving God with all of your being and your neighbor as yourself. So we got, we're kind of understanding righteousness. But how does for righteousness sake in verse 10 equate for Christ's sake in verse 11? Craig Keener has some insights here that's important. And remember, we're just drilling into the text real quick. I promise we'll come, we'll come back out. But drilling in, Craig Keener says this, to suffer for righteousness sake is to suffer for Jesus's name because the characteristics Jesus lists are belonging to the people of the kingdom and are also those Jesus himself exemplifies as the leading servant of the kingdom and son par excellence of the father. All right, but here is the point I'm trying to drive home is that not everyone who is mistreated and discriminated against is blessed by Jesus. Are you tracking with that? Not everyone is blessed who is mistreated and discriminated against. Only those persecuted for righteousness' sake, that is, only those persecuted for Christ's sake are blessed. So remember the big idea. Rejoice when you are persecuted for Christ's sake. So we looked at the explanation. Now let's move to the evaluation. Um, Every time when I'm, I'm studying, when, when, I, you know, when I'm assigned a text that we're going to preach here, uh, I'll pull, you know, pull out the scriptures, and so it's, it's just every time I look at it and I go, wow, I'm going to have to preach on that, you know? It's, uh, and, 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 and this time, it felt that feeling just was amplified like 10 times more. Because who, who am I? I was even chuckling to, to God in prayer. Who am I to preach on persecution? But thank God that the uh, ultimate fruitfulness of a sermon is not based on the messenger, but on where the source of the message comes from. And that's the inspired and an inerrant word of God. Do you see what I'm saying? That was a Presbyterian amen moment. All right. But considering my lack of understanding, especially of Christian persecution in a global sense, which is, was absolutely pathetic, I reached out for help. And uh, I won't mention his name just in case because he, he is a missionary. Uh, he's in our, in our church. Um, but 
Uh, I said, hey, man, I need, I need some resources on persecution. What does that look like globally? I, I just haven't studied it much. Because even one of my favorite bookstores is the Reformed Theological Seminary Bookstore. I go in there, and I'm like, hey, man, I need, I need some books on, on persecution. And the guy behind the computer is like, uh... You know, it's just not, it's not in high demand. So I'm asking this missionary friend, hey, I need some resources. He sends me this email with all the links to websites and academic papers and articles, books, all that kind of stuff. I'd love to share it with you if you'd like that. Um, but on one of the websites he sent me, which was opendoorsusa.org, there were some staggering statistics on there. Each month, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. Each month, each month, 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed. And 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians, such as beatings, abductions, rapes, arrest, and forced marriages. So even at this point, I know that we're just, we're prone to check out. When you're hearing, this is tough, right? This is hard. Even Aaron and I were, were, were kind of working through the, the manuscript last night and editing it. And she's like, Daniel, it's already dark enough. We need to cut this out and cut this out, liven that up. So Aaron, thankfully, made this a little bit lighter. But, you know, in, in, in you know, the spirit of setting expectations, it's, I know it's dark, right? It's, it's a little bit dark. And, and we have this feeling, even when we hear about persecution and Christianity, that, that feeling kind of rises up in us kind of like when we see a starving child in Africa on the TV screen, many of us, not all of us, but many of us have just programmed our mind to get that remote, change it, just change it. I don't even want to see it, right? And so I know us, some of us, maybe even feeling that right now, you just want to check out because you don't want to think about this, too negative, all that kind of stuff. But Jesus incorporates it into the Beatitudes. So I want to challenge you to hang in there. I want to challenge you to study persecution more. So, back to our, our working def definition. Persecution is mistreatment and discrimination from as mild as social distance and as severe as murder for Christ's sake. But, you know, we're thinking about global persecution, and sometimes we can kind of just think that that's only out there. It's only out there where it's people living underneath radical theocracies or underneath totalitarian tyranny. But let me ask you, we need to ask this question of ourselves. As an individual, are we persecuted? So take a second, ask yourself, am I as an individual persecuted? How would you answer that? I know when I ask that, there's some of you not all of you, but some of you would say, yeah, <laughs> I'm persecuted all the time. Maybe you're, you say, yeah, um, you could probably go on about the places of business you have been kicked out of, the friendships you have lost, the, sh the jobs you have been fired from, the neighborhood associations you have been asked not to attend, the networking groups that have shunned you, the local government that has reprimanded you, the mom's group that took you off of their email chain, how your property has been damaged, how your reputation has been ruined, 
and about the altercations that have resulted with your conversations with unbelievers. Maybe you could go on and on and on about how you're persecuted all the time. But let me ask you this. Are you persecuted so much for Christ's sake or are you just a jerk? (laughs) Is genuine righteousness the reason people are repelled from your presence or is it because you lack relational intelligence? Because I, I Googled this phrase, obnoxious Christians. And all of you, you can only imagine what comes up, right? But it didn't take long till I started seeing this pattern of like Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas. And I don't know if you know anything about them. Um, they made some real big news lines um, in, in the previous years when they picketed a homosexual soldier's funeral with picketing signs with anti-gay uh, messages on them. Now, I know that's a little bit extreme, but that's, that's, not the way, that's not the way to engage people who differ with you. You see what I'm saying? That causes unnecessary dis- distance between you and somebody that differs from you. And I know that's extreme, it's hyperbolic, but how can we think about that to challenge ourselves to go in and think, hmm, are there ways that I'm engaging with the culture around me that are unnecessarily unwise and repugnant and, and, and alienating. There's just something, something, something to think about. But then when I ask you that, are you as an individual persecuted? I'm sure a, a larger majority of us probably said, hmm, come to think of it, I can't think of a single recent event when I was persecuted. If I was to ask you why this is the case, I'm sure you could find a lot of reasons. Like we are super busy with work. Most of our energy is focused on socializing in the hopes of finding a future spouse. We're distracted with taking our children to school and sports and all the other things that 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 season of life brings. Or we're really enjoying the rest of retirement. Are you really that busy or distracted? Or are you scared of being rejected? Is it really because you're a coward? I'm asking these hard questions from both groups of people because neither being persecuted all the time nor never being persecuted are Christ-like. Do you understand that? Because Jesus was not persecuted all the time. His ministry was incredibly winsome to many. But at the same time, Jesus was no people pleaser either, was he? Uh, One of my friend's wives, she posted this thing on social media as a, you know, meme. For those of you that don't social media, I I get it. Uh, You know, this meme is an image. It's got like this pithy or funny uh, statement on there, and it's not too much content. It's just you're supposed to get it when you see it. Well, anyways, on this particular meme that she posted, it was one image, but it had three photos stacked on top of each other, and they were scenes from some movie with Leonardo DiCaprio in it. I don't know what it was, but it's two guys they're, they're facing each other, and Leonardo's leaning in, and the words in the meme say, if you would just act like Jesus, 
everyone would love you. And then in the next phrase, the guy's looking back and he's like, but they crucified Jesus, dot, dot, dot. And then the final little photo is Leonardo looking back and he's going, he's got that kind of inquisitive, defeated look on his face and there's no words. And the implicit message is that he's sitting there thinking, oh yeah, I forgot about that part. Because Jesus was persecuted by the establishment, wasn't he? Even though he was an innocent man. Well, Peter has a word for both of us. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 3, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 17. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 17. I apologize, I didn't get it in, didn't get, I didn't get it in early enough to put on the screen. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 17. It's good to hear those pages. I like that. See, Peter has a word for both groups of people in this section. So starting in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, sound familiar? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. I'll read that again. Listen, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet what? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For those of us who are cowards, Peter says, don't fear man, fear the Lord. And for those of us who are jerks, he commands us to defend Christian beliefs and practices, but to do so with gentleness and respect. So do you remember the big idea of the sermon? It's rejoice when you are persecuted for Christ's sake. We've looked at the explanation and did a, an evaluation. Let's move now to the final section, exaltation. Do you know what exalt means? Not exalt, but exalt. Exalt means to rejoice to show great joy and delight. Well, what does that have to do with this sermon? I know, this, I mean, it's the first, it, it, even when I was looking at this, where, where does this come in? Turn back to Matthew 5. So if you're in Peter, turn back to Matthew 5, and we'll look at verses 11 through 12. Starting in verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So is Jesus suggesting this? Is it good advice? He's commanding it. Rejoice and be glad. What comes to mind when you hear this? I mean, Aaron and I, the other night, we were, we were laying in bed and we were talking through this, and it just seems unnatural, doesn't it? Counterintuitive when you're mistreated or discriminated against. 
as severe as social distancing on the one hand or as severe as murder on the other hand. Jesus is commanding us to rejoice and be glad? Well, what is the reason that Jesus gives? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then on down it says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. John Piper helps us understand this by writing one way. Because this is, we've got to figure this out, right? Do you, do you, do you see the, the problem here? Rejoice and be glad in the midst of suffering and persecution? Let's figure this out. John Piper says this. One way of rejoicing and suffering comes from fixing our minds firmly on the greatness of the reward that will come to us in the resurrection. The effect of this kind of focus is to make our present pain seem small in comparison to what is coming. This is what Paul says in Romans 8.18. For I consider the sufferings in this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Well, is that because Paul didn't suffer much? I mean, what, what did Paul's sufferings look like? I mean, there's a whole litany of things that happened to Paul. He was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, imprisoned, and on and on and on. And there's this one particular type of suffering that he experienced for Christ's sake that I want to highlight. And he says it in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four: Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Did you catch that? How many times did this happen? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. And one scholar put it this way. Lest we pass over this too quickly without having the breath knocked out of us, consider what it meant to receive 40 lashes less one. It meant that he was stripped and tied to some kind of stake so that he could not run or fall. Then a person trained in flogging would take a whip, maybe with or without shards in the leather, and lash Paul's back 39 times. Halfway through, or earlier perhaps, the skin would begin to break and tear. By the end, parts of Paul's back would be like jelly. The lacerations would not be clean as with a razor blade. The skin would be torn and shredded so that healing would be slow and perhaps complicated by infection. They knew nothing of sterilization in those days and had no antiseptics. It would take perhaps months before his garments could hang on his back without pain. All right, now, with all that in view, all that, consider that this happened a second time on the same back, opening all of the scars. It healed more slowly the second time. Then consider that some months later, it happened a third time. Imagine what his back must have looked like. Then it happened again. And finally, it happened a fifth time. And this was just one of Paul's sufferings. This is the same Paul who wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.17, 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light and momentary affliction, he said. Because here is what we're trying to communicate. When you compare your momentary affliction to that of the eternal weight of glory, do you know what begins to happen in your mind and in your heart? You start thinking the way that Paul did in Romans 8 when he said this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Because as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 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 no. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. May the Holy Spirit bring to remembrance Paul's and Jesus' words when you experience persecution. Because in those moments, compare your momentary affliction to that of the eternal weight of glory. And this will enable you to rejoice when you are persecuted for Christ's sake. But then if you persevere, your joy intensifies. Not just to the moment of persecution, but if you persevere. It's one thing to die for Christ. It's another thing to live for him. But if you persevere, the joy increases. John Piper goes on and says, this intense joy comes from the sense that you have endured with the help of Christ. You have been proven in the fire and have come through as genuine. You did not recant. The apostles seem to experience this very same thing in Acts 5.41, where it says, after being beaten, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoice when you are persecuted for Christ's sake. I'll conclude with this. At the end of Matthew 12, Jesus says this when he ends the the Beatitudes. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. 
Jeremiah was put in the stocks. Zechariah was stoned. And so Jesus is trying to encourage, like inject courage into his disciples when that moment happens to know that they are in good company. And did you know that Jesus called himself a prophet in Luke 13, 33? But what is the difference between Jesus and the other prophets? The other prophets only propagated God's message. But God put forward Christ as a propitiation. In other words, Jesus bore the wrath of God against sin. And did you know that there was this prophet Isaiah who wrote about the persecution Jesus experienced? Because think about it. Who is teaching us this text this morning? Whose words are these? These are the words of a persecuted Christ. And this persecution was prophesied 750 years before he came. In Isaiah's words, when he says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his words, with his wounds, And with his wounds, we are healed. Us jerks and us cowards, Isaiah has something for you. All we like sheep have gone astray. 